702. The Naked Scientist. Time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. Now we're going to get straight into it. All of your science-related questions, 072-702-1702, or give us a call, 011-8830702. And we've got the first one from Michelle in Centurion. Hey, Doc, and it goes like this. Dr. Chris, please help me understand. My face and eyes unfortunately go horribly red when I cry. It is not a good look at all and rather embarrassing. Sadly, I don't have a movie star cry where one has beautifully formed teardrops and looks fabulous. It feels like I am allergic to my own tears. What causes it, Doc? And to me, Doctor, that sounds quite normal that um, crying your eyes go red. But this sounds like something extreme. Oh, I'm sorry. I hope it isn't something extreme. I mean, people do cry for various reasons. Um, the answer is that we as humans are really visual creatures. We use about a third of our brain to decode what we're looking at. And with so much brain power devoted to processing one single sense, unsurprisingly, we put enormous emphasis on it. And that means we convey as much information visually as we can. And that's why we cry in the first place, because when we display our emotions in the form of tears, it's very obvious that someone is feeling extremely unhappy and they probably need us to take care of them, give them a hug and make sure they're okay. So bottom line is that part and parcel of going bright red as well as having tears is that visual communication of my emotions are running high, you need to look out because I need either your help and support or you need to stay out of the way because I'm really angry and I might, I might take it further. So first of all, it's not abnormal to go red when we cry because the same, the same nerve mechanisms that make us cry also affect the distribution of blood flow in the skin, in the face, and that's why we go red with anger then you've got the same thing happening. You're opening up blood vessels in the, in the face to display a heightened emotion. The eyes go red because when we produce lots of tears, we also end up dilating the blood vessels which are in the eyes. And this has the effect of meaning there's more blood closer to the surface. So the same reason the, your face looks red, your eyes look a bit red. And there is, there is some irritation going on as well because you tend to be blinking a lot more. And, and this can also cause um, your, your blood vessels in your eyes to open up. So this sounds like a perfectly normal response to crying. The more important question is, Who's upsetting you? Because if they are, do, do they need a word in their ear, either by you or your bestie, as you were talking about besties earlier? There we go. And I would say you're allergic to the pain. Uh, that is what you're allergic to and the person that is hurting you. Question coming through says, hi, please ask the doctor if there's something that can be done if the minute you put your hands in water, your bladder wants to let go. It's becoming very irritating for me lately. Oh no. Yeah, um, this sounds like one of those classic examples of brain over bladder. We often have this experience where you'll be out and about and you don't need to go for the wee. And as soon as you get home and you're within reach of a toilet, suddenly there is this overwhelming urge that I can't wait one second longer. I have to go to the loo. And probably something is stimulating. So when you put your hands in the water, that's probably it. Maybe it's the sound of the water that that has become connected to. I need to go to the loo right now. And it produces this overwhelming feedback loop because your bladder is under unconscious control. A part of your nervous system called the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system tell your bladder to relax, open up, accept urine, which is flowing in from your kidneys at about the rate of one milliliter per minute on average. This causes the bladder to relax and open and accommodate the urine. But as soon as you then have the fe feeling, right, I think I'm going to go for a wee now, or I've got the opportunity to, messages come from the brain to the bladder saying, right, start to contract the muscle and put the pressure up and also relax the sphincter that holds everything in so you can go.
Now, normally those things are very strongly suppressed by the fact that you think, I'm not near a loo, I don't need to go, I'm out and about, I really mustn't go now. So it turns off all of those pathways. But when something deactivates them and turns them back on again, it can have the effect of making it feel really like there's an urgency here. There are also forms of incontinence called urge incontinence, where people suddenly do experience an overwhelming need to go. And this can be a, an, a sign of an, un, of an underlying bladder condition, or what we call detrusor instability. So if this is a new thing, it's suddenly started to happen, it's, in, it's happening increasingly frequently and it's socially inconvenient and it's upsetting your life, then this needs investigation. So if it's not just attributable to psychology and it, and it really is affecting life, then it does need investigating. There might be an underlying issue that can be fixed relatively easily in many cases, but it does start with having a conversation with someone who's an expert in that area of the body and knows the medical background and might be able to give some advice. All right, we have a question um, um, that was actually from our earlier topic, but I thought it was more appropriate for you, doctor, to help with this one. And they say, hi, I would like to remain anonymous. My pregnant daughter's partner died of HIV-related illness. She tested negative and is not sure if she can breastfeed after she gives birth. Is it advisable for her to breastfeed exclusively or should she bottle feed the baby formula? Right. Well, this is a really important question because we know that a huge contribution of HIV transmission numbers comes from breastfeeding from a mum who is HIV positive and a, a, a high fraction of the new acquisitions at birth do come via that route because a newborn baby has a gut that's very susceptible, unlike an adult or an older child is not susceptible to HIV entering via that route, but young babies are. So the number one thing is that breastfeeding is of enormous value nutritionally and developmentally to that baby. So it's really critical that that baby gets breastfed if it possibly can. So the number one thing and the safest thing to do is to rule out any evidence of HIV infection in mum. And if mum is HIV negative, then the best thing to do is to breastfeed the baby. Because if mum is proven HIV negative on, you wouldn't just do one test, you do a test and then make sure that you've also retested outside what we call the window period, because obviously there is an incubation period for HIV during which you may be incubating the infection and the tests have not yet gone positive. So one makes sure in any kind of screening that we're outside that window period or we've tested across that window period. If this gives a reassuring no, there is no evidence of infection and if there's been no further risk of exposure for mum then the best thing she can possibly do is if she can to breastfeed her baby because breast is genuinely best it's preheated it's nutritionally balanced it's just right for the baby and it's available on tap and you don't have to fiddle around with sterilizing and things it's very easy and babies love it thank you and i think that is quite an important one doctor we're going to take a quick break when we can come back more of your questions the naked scientist and we're wrapping up with the Naked Scientist, O double one double eight three oh seven oh two in the WhatsApp line O seven two seven oh two one seven oh two. We go to Eugene in Bryanston. Hi, Eugene. Hi, good afternoon, Naked Scientist. Hi, Eugene. Um, I just wanna know very quickly, I know it sounds maybe like a stupid question, but prostate cancer, uh, you know, is on the increase. Why are so many men getting prostate cancer? And uh, what can we do to prevent it if we haven't got it or we, we may be getting it? You know, I don't know. Mm. Thank mm. you. Hello, Eugene. Well, the, the answer is that prostate cancer is very, very common. And the evidence is that by the age of about 80, 
100% of men have prostate cancer. But will 100% of men die of it? No, they almost certainly won't. Most of them will die with it. But at the same time, a very significant number of men do die of prostate cancer and its direct consequences. I don't think it's becoming more common for any reason other than the fact that more people are living sufficiently long for it to become a problem. Historically, because it is a, a more common condition of old age, when people died of other things at a younger age, while they may well have had prostate cancer in the background, it wouldn't have been a problem for them, it wouldn't have been diagnosed and we wouldn't have known about it. But in the same way that Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia are now becoming more common in the community, and the reason is that people are living long enough to get them, prostate cancer is a bit like that in the sense that we are seeing more people developing it and therefore living with it and having consequences from it. And this means that there is a search on to find better ways to diagnose it and to screen for it. And researchers here at Cambridge University, where I am, including Vincent Jana Progassen, who's uh, an international authority on this, are trying to develop ways that we can measure various markers in the bloodstream in order to give us a good picture or a better picture of who has got prostate cancer and if they have, for whom is it going to be a problem? Because what we don't want to do is to do a screening test where we find 100% of people aged 80 have some type of prostate cancer and then turn those people into people with a poor quality of life because we give them unnecessary medical intervention. Because although we may find a cancer, it may in that individual never be a problem for them and they may die of something completely unrelated. So the worst thing to do is to find them, label them as a cancer victim and spoil their remaining healthy years of life with a treatment they didn't need. So that's really the challenge with prostate cancer. But I think it's more a reflection on the ageing population than it is on something changing fundamentally, making it more common than it used to be. Oh, we're going to have to leave it there, Dr. Christmas. Thank you so, so much for all of your uh, answering of the science-related questions. And we are going to be back next week, Monday.